0: Lecture 1 part 2 from analysis of mind by bertrand russell this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org read by bob newfeld lecture 1 recent criticisms of consciousness part 2 After mentioning the duality of subject and object, which is supposed to constitute consciousness, he proceeds in italics. Experience, I believe, has no such inner duplicity, and the separation of it into consciousness and content comes not by way of subtraction, but by way of addition. He illustrates his meaning by the analogy of paint, as it appears in a paint-shop and as it appears in a picture. In the one case it is just salable matter, while in the other it performs a spiritual function. Just so, I maintain, he continues, does a given undivided portion of experience, taken in one context of associates, play a part of a knower, a state of mind, of consciousness, while in a different context the same undivided bit of experience plays the part of a thing known, of an objective content in a word, in one group it figures as a thought, in another group as a thing. He does not believe in the supposed immediate certainty of thought. Let the case be what it may in others, he says, I am as confident as I am of anything, that in myself the stream of thinking, which I recognize emphatically as a phenomenon, is only a careless name for what, when scrutinized, reveals itself to consist chiefly of the stream of my breathing. The I-think which Kant said must be able to accompany all my objects is the I-breathe which actually does accompany them. The same view of consciousness is set forth in the succeeding essay, A World of Pure Experience. The use of the phrase pure experience, in both essays, points to a lingering influence of idealism. Experience, like consciousness, must be a product, not part of the primary stuff of the world it must be possible if james is right in his main contentions that roughly the same stuff differently arranged would not give rise to anything that could be called experience this word has been dropped by the american realists among whom we may mention specially professor r b perry of harvard and mr edwin b holt the interests of this school are in general philosophy and the philosophy of the sciences rather than in psychology. They have derived a strong impulsion from James, but have more interest than he had in logic and mathematics and the abstract part of philosophy. They speak of neutral entities as the stuff out of which both mind and matter are constructed. Thus Holt says, if the terms and propositions of logic must be substantialized, they are all strictly of one substance for which, perhaps, the least dangerous name is neutral stuff. The relation of neutral stuff to matter and mind we shall have presently to consider at considerable length." My own belief, for which the reasons will appear in subsequent lectures, is that James is right in rejecting consciousness as an entity, and that the American realists are partly right, though not wholly, in considering that both mind and matter are composed of a neutral stuff which, in isolation, is neither mental nor material. I should admit this view as regards sensations. What is heard or seen belongs equally to psychology and to physics. But I should say that images belong only to the mental world, while those occurrences, if any, which do not form part of any experience, belong only to the physical world there are it seems to me prima facie different kinds of causal laws one belonging to physics and the other to psychology the law of gravitation for example is a physical law while the law of association is the psychological law sensations are subject to both kinds of laws and are therefore truly neutral in holt's sense But entities subject only to physical laws, or only to psychological laws, are not neutral, and may be called respectively purely material and purely mental. Even those, however, which are purely mental will not have that intrinsic reference to objects which Bentano assigns to them, and which constitutes the essence of consciousness as ordinarily understood. But it is now time to pass on to other modern tendencies, also hostile to consciousness. There is a psychological school called behaviorists, of whom the protagonist is Professor John B. Watson, formerly of the Johns Hopkins University. To them also, on the whole, belongs Professor John Dewey, who, with James and Dr. Schiller, was one of the three founders of pragmatism. The view of the behaviorists is that nothing can be known except by external observation. They deny altogether that there is a separate source of knowledge called introspection, by which we know things about ourselves which we could never observe in others. They do not by any means deny that all sorts of things may go on in our minds. They only say that such things, if they occur, are not susceptible of scientific observation, and do not therefore concern psychology as a science. Psychology as a science, they say, is only concerned with behavior that is with what we do this alone they contend can be accurately observed whether we think meanwhile they tell us cannot be known in their observation of the behaviour of human beings they have not so far found any evidence of thought true we talk a great deal and imagine that in so doing we are showing that we think but behaviourists say that the talk they have to listen to can be explained without supposing that people think Where you might expect a chapter on thought processes, you come instead upon a chapter on the language habit. It is humiliating to find how terribly adequate this hypothesis turns out to be. Behaviorism is not, however, sprung from observing the folly of men. It is the wisdom of animals that has suggested the view. It has always been a common topic of popular discussion whether animals think, On this topic people are prepared to take sides without having the vaguest idea what they mean by thinking. Those who desired to investigate such questions were led to observe the behavior of animals, in the hope that their behavior would throw some light on their mental faculties. At first sight it might seem that this is so. People say that a dog knows its name because it comes when it is called, and that it remembers its master because it looks sad in his absence but wags its tail and barks when he returns. That the dog behaves in this way is matter of observation, but that it knows or remembers anything is an influence, and in fact a very doubtful one. The more such inferences are examined, the more precarious they are seen to be. Hence the study of animal behaviour has been gradually led to abandon all attempt at mental interpretation and it can hardly be doubted that, in many cases of complicated behavior, very well adapted to its ends, there can be no prevision of those ends. The first time a bird builds a nest we can hardly suppose it knows that there will be eggs to be laid in it, or that it will sit on the eggs, or that they will hatch into young birds. It does what it does at each stage, because instinct gives it an impulse to do just that not because it foresees or desires the result of its actions. Careful observers of animals, being anxious to avoid precarious inferences, have gradually discovered more and more how to give an account of the actions of animals without assuming what we call consciousness. It has seemed to the behaviorists that similar methods can be applied to human behavior, without assuming anything not open to external observation. Let us give a crude illustration too crude for the authors in question, but capable of affording a rough insight into their meaning. Suppose two children in a school, both of whom are asked, What is six times nine? One says fifty-four, the other says fifty-six. The one, we say, knows what six times nine is, the other does not. But all that we can observe is a certain language habit. The one child has acquired the habit of saying, Six times nine is fifty-four, the other has not. There is no more need of thought in this than there is when a horse turns into its accustomed stable. There are merely more numerous and complicated habits. There is obviously an observable fact called knowing such and such a thing. Examinations are experiments for discovering such facts. But all that is observed or discovered is a certain set of habits in the use of words. The thoughts, if any, in the mind of the examinee are of no interest to the examiner, nor has the examiner any reason to suppose, even the most successful examinee, capable of even the smallest amount of thought. Thus what is called knowing, in the sense in which we can ascertain what other people know, is a phenomenon exemplified in their physical behaviour, including spoken and written words. There is no reason, so Watson argues, to suppose that their knowledge is anything beyond the habits shown in this behaviour the inference that other people have something non-physical called mind or thought is therefore unwarranted so far we have been principally concerned with knowing but it might well be maintained that desiring is what is really most characteristic of mind human beings are constantly engaged in achieving some end they feel pleasure in success and pain in failure in a purely material world it may be said there would be no opposition of pleasant and unpleasant good and bad what is desired and what is feared a man's acts are governed by purposes he decides let us suppose to go to a certain place whereupon he proceeds to the station takes his ticket and enters the train if the usual route is blocked by an accident he goes by some other route all that he does is determined or so it seems by the end he has in view, by what lies in front of him, rather than by what lies behind. With dead matter this is not the case. A stone at the top of a hill may start rolling, but it shows no pertinacity in trying to get to the bottom. Any ledge or obstacle will stop it, and it will exhibit no signs of discontent if this happens. It is not attracted by the pleasantness of the valley, as a sheep or cow might be, but propelled by the steepness of the hill at the place where it is. In all this we have characteristic differences between the behavior of animals and the behavior of matter as studied by physics. Desire, like knowledge, is, of course, in one sense an observable phenomenon. An elephant will eat a bun, but not a mutton-chop. A duck will go into the water, but a hen will not but when we think of our own desires most people believe that we can know them by an immediate self-knowledge which does not depend upon observation of our actions yet if this were the case it would be odd that people are so often mistaken as to what they desire it is a matter of common observation that so-and-so does not know his own motives or that a is envious of b and malicious about him but quite unconscious of being so Such people are called self-deceivers, and are supposed to have had to go through some more or less elaborate process of concealing from themselves what would otherwise have been obvious. I believe that this is an entire mistake. I believe that the discovery of our own motives can only be made by the same process by which we discover other people's, namely the process of observing our actions and inferring the desire which could prompt them. A desire is conscious when we have told ourselves that we have it. A hungry man may say to himself, Oh, I do what my lunch. Then his desire is conscious, but only differs from an unconscious desire by the presence of appropriate words, which is by no means a fundamental difference. The belief that a motive is normally conscious makes it easier to be mistaken as to our own motives than as to other people's. When some desire that we should be ashamed of is attributed to us, we notice that we have never had it consciously in the sense of saying to ourselves i wish that would happen we therefore look for some other interpretation of our actions and regard our friends as very unjust when they refuse to be convinced by our repudiation of what we hold to be a calumny moral considerations greatly increase the difficulty of clear thinking in this matter it is commonly argued that people are not to blame for unconscious motives but only for conscious ones in order therefore to be wholly virtuous it is only necessary to repeat virtuous formulas we say i desire to be kind to my friends honourable in business philanthropic towards the poor public-spirited in politics so long as we refuse to allow ourselves even in the watches of the night to avow any contrary desires we may be bullies at home shady in the city skin-flints in paying wages, and profiteers in dealing with the public. Yet if only conscious motives are to count in moral valuation, we shall remain model characters. This is an agreeable doctrine, and it is not surprising that men are unwilling to abandon it. But moral considerations are the worst enemies of the scientific spirit, and we must dismiss them from our minds if we wish to arrive at truth. I believe, as I shall try to prove in a later lecture, that desire, like force in mechanics, is of the nature of a convenient fiction for describing shortly certain laws of behavior. A hungry animal is restless until it finds food, then it becomes quiescent. The thing which will bring a restless condition to an end is said to be what is desired. But only experience can show what will have this sedative effect and it is easy to make mistakes. We feel dissatisfaction, and think that such and such a thing would remove it. But in thinking this we are theorizing, not observing a patent fact. Our theorizing is often mistaken, and when it is mistaken there is a difference between what we think we desire and what in fact will bring satisfaction. This is such a common phenomenon that any theory of desire which fails to account for it must be wrong. What we have called unconscious desires have been brought very much to the fore in recent years by psychoanalysis. Psychoanalysis, as everyone knows, is primarily a method of understanding hysteria, and certain forms of insanity. But it has been found that there is much in the lives of ordinary men and women which bears a humiliating resemblance to the delusions of the insane. The connection of dreams, irrational beliefs, and foolish actions, with unconscious wishes has been brought to light, though with some exaggeration, by Freud and Jung and their followers. As regards the nature of these unconscious wishes, it seems to me, though as a layman I speak with diffidence, that many psychoanalysts are unduly narrow. No doubt the wishes they emphasize exist, but others, for example for honor and power, are equally operative and equally liable to concealment. This, however, does not affect the value of their own general theories from the point of view of theoretic psychology, and it is from this point of view that their results are important for the analysis of mind. What, I think, is clearly established is that a man's action and beliefs may be wholly dominated by a desire of which he is quite unconscious, and which he indignantly repudiates when it is suggested to him. Such a desire is generally, in morbid cases, of a sort which the patient would consider wicked, if he had to admit that he had the desire he would loathe himself. Yet it is so strong that it must force an outlet for itself. Hence it becomes necessary to entertain whole systems of false beliefs in order to hide the nature of what is desired. The resulting delusions in very many cases disappear if the hysteric or lunatic can be made to face the facts about himself the consequence of this is that the treatment of many forms of insanity has grown more psychological and less physiological than it used to be instead of looking for a physical defect in the brain those who treat delusions look for the repressed desire which has found this contorted mode of expression for those who do not wish to plunge into the somewhat repulsive and often rather wild theories of psychoanalytic pioneers it will be worth while to read a little book by dr bernard hart on the psychology of insanity on this question of the mental as opposed to the physiological study of the cases of insanity dr hart says the psychological conception of insanity is based on the view that mental processes can be directly studied without any reference to the accompanying changes which are presumed to take place in the brain and that insanity may therefore be properly attacked from the standpoint of psychology this illustrates a point which I am anxious to make clear from the outset any attempt to classify modern views such as I propose to advocate from the old standpoint of materialism and idealism is only misleading in certain respects the views which I shall be setting forth approximate to materialism in certain others they approximate to its opposite On this question of the study of delusions, the practical effect of the modern theories, as Dr. Hart points out, is emancipation from the materialist method. On the other hand, as he also points out, imbecility and dementia still have to be considered physiologically, as caused by defects in the brain. There is no inconsistency in this, if, as we maintain, mind and matter are neither of them the actual stuff of reality but different convenient groupings of an underlying material, then clearly the question whether in regard to a given phenomenon we are to seek a physical or a mental cause is merely one to be decided by trial. Metaphysicians have argued endlessly as to the interaction of mind and matter. The followers of Descartes held that mind and matter are so different as to make any action of the one on the other impossible. When I move my arm, they said, It is not my will that operates on my arm, but God, who, by His omnipotence, moves my arm whenever I want it moved. The modern doctrine of psychophysical parallelism is not appreciably different from the theory of the Cartesian school. Psychophysical parallelism is the theory that mental and physical events each have causes in their own sphere, but run on side by side owing to the fact that every state of the brain co-exists with a definite state of mind, and vice versa. This view of the reciprocal causal independence of mind and matter has no basis except in metaphysical theory. For us there is no necessity to make any such assumption, which is very difficult to harmonize with obvious facts. I receive a letter inviting me to dinner. The letter is a physical fact, but my apprehension of its meaning is mental. Here we have an effect of matter on mind. In consequence of my apprehension of the meaning of the letter I go to the right place at the right time. Here we have an effect of mind on matter. I shall try to persuade you in the course of these lectures that matter is not so material and mind not so mental as is generally supposed. When we are speaking of matter it will seem as if we are inclining to idealism. When we are speaking of mind It will seem as if we are inclining to materialism. Neither is the truth. Our world is to be constructed out of what the American realists call neutral entities, which have neither the hardness and indestructibility of matter, nor the reference to objects which is supposed to characterize mind. There is, it is true, one objection which might be felt, not indeed to the action of matter on mind, but to the action of mind on matter. The laws of physics, it may be urged, are apparently adequate to explain everything that happens to matter, even when it is matter in a man's brain. This, however, is only a hypothesis, not an established theory. There is no cogent empirical reason for supposing that the laws determining the motions of living bodies are exactly the same as those that appeal to dead matter. Sometimes, of course, they are clearly the same. When a man falls from a precipice or slips on a piece of orange-peel, his body behaves as if it were devoid of life. These are the occasions that make Bergson laugh, but when a man's bodily movements are what we call voluntary, prima facie, very different in their laws from the movements of what is devoid of life. I do not wish to say dogmatically that the difference is irreducible. I think it is highly probable that it is not. I say only that the study of the behaviour of living bodies, in the present state of our knowledge, is distinct from physics. The study of gases was originally quite distinct from that of rigid bodies, and would never have advanced to its present state if it had not been independently pursued. Nowadays, both the gas and the rigid body are manufactured out of a more primitive and universal kind of matter, in like manner, as a question of methodology, The laws of living bodies are to be studied, in the first place, without any undue haste to subordinate them to the laws of physics. Boyle's law and the rest had to be discovered before the kinetic theory of gases became possible. But in psychology we are hardly yet at the stage of Boyle's law. We need not be held up by the bogey of the universal rigid exactness of physics. This is, as yet, a mere hypothesis to be tested empirically without any preconceptions. It might be true or it might not. So far that is all we can say. Returning from this digression to our main topic, namely the criticism of consciousness, we observe that Freud and his followers, though they have demonstrated beyond dispute the immense importance of unconscious desires in determining our actions and beliefs, have not attempted the task of telling us what an unconscious desire actually is and have thus invested their doctrine with an air of mystery and mythology which forms a large part of its popular attractiveness they speak always as though it were more normal for a desire to be conscious and as though a positive cause had to be assigned for its being unconscious thus the unconscious becomes a sort of underground prisoner living in a dungeon breaking in at long intervals upon our daylight respectability, with dark groans and maledictions and strange atavistic lusts. The original reader, almost inevitably, thinks of this underground person as another consciousness, prevented by what Freud calls the censor, from making his voice heard in company, except on rare and dreadful occasions, when he shouts so loud that every one hears him and there is a scandal. Most of us like the idea that we could be desperately wicked if only we let ourselves go. For this reason the Freudian unconscious has been a consolation to many quiet and well-behaved persons. I do not think the truth is quite so picturesque as this. I believe an unconscious desire is merely a causal law of our behavior, namely, that we remain restlessly active until a certain state of affairs is realized when we achieve temporary equilibrium. If we know beforehand what this state of affairs is, our desire is conscious, if not unconscious. The unconscious desire is not something actually existing, but merely a tendency to a certain behavior. It has exactly the same status as a force in dynamics. The unconscious desire is in no way mysterious. It is the natural primitive form of desire, from which the other has developed through our habit of observing and theorizing, often wrongly. It is not necessary to suppose, as Freud seems to do, that every unconscious wish was once conscious, and was then, in his terminology, repressed, because we disapproved of it. On the contrary, we shall suppose that, although Freudian repression undoubtedly occurs and is important, It is not the usual reason for unconsciousness of our wishes. The usual reason is merely that wishes are all, to begin with, unconscious, and only become known when they are actively noticed. Usually, from laziness, people do not notice, but accept the theory of human nature which they find current, and attribute to themselves whatever wishes this theory would lead them to expect. We used to be full of virtuous wishes. But since Freud, our wishes have become, in the words of the prophet Jeremiah, deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked. But these views, in most of those who have held them, are the product of theory rather than observation, for observation requires effort, whereas repeating phrases does not. The interpretation of unconscious wishes which I have been advocating has been set forth briefly by Professor John B. Watson in an article called The Psychology of Wish Fulfillment, which appeared in the Scientific Monthly in November, 1916. Two quotations will serve to show his point of view. The Freudians, he says, have made more or less of a metaphysical entity out of the censor. They suppose that when wishes are repressed, they are repressed into the unconscious, and that this mysterious censor stands at the trap-door lying between the conscious and the unconscious many of us do not believe in a world of the unconscious a few of us even have grave doubts about the usefulness of the term consciousness hence we try to explain censorship along ordinary biological lines we believe that one group of habits can down another group of habits or instincts in this case our ordinary system of habits those which we call expressive of our real selves, inhibit or quench, keep inactive or partially inactive, those habits and instinctive tendencies which belong largely in the past. Again, after speaking of the frustration of some impulses which is involved in acquiring the habits of a civilized adult, he continues, It is among these frustrated impulses that I would find the biological basis of the unfulfilled wish such wishes need never have been conscious and need never have been suppressed into freud's realm of the unconscious it may be inferred from this that there is no particular reason for applying the term wish to such tendencies one of the merits of the general analysis of mind which we shall be concerned with in the following lectures is that it removes the atmosphere of mystery from the phenomena brought to light by the psychoanalysts mystery is delightful, but unscientific, since it depends upon ignorance. Man has developed out of the animals, and there is no serious gap between him and the amoeba. Something closely analogous to knowledge and desire, as regards its effects on behaviour, exists among animals, even where what we call consciousness is hard to believe in. Something equally analogous exists in ourselves in cases where no trace of consciousness can be found. It is therefore natural to suppose that whatever may be the correct definition of consciousness, consciousness is not the essence of life or mind. In the following lectures, accordingly, this term will disappear until we have dealt with words, when it will re-emerge as mainly a trivial and unimportant outcome of linguistic habits. Lecture one